From New York, this is Democracy Now! When the separation of families at the border here happened in 2017 and 18, I remember the kinder transport and other instances in which the children have been taken away from the parents. For example, during slavery, children were sold out or taken from their mother's arms. The Wind Knows My Name. That's the title of the new novel by acclaimed author Isabel Allende, which looks at the trauma of child-family separation from the Nazi Holocaust to the U.S.-Mexican border. She joins us today. But first, we speak to the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Maria Inejosa on a new investigation into the sexual abuse of women detained by ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russian ongoing attacks on Ukrainian grain supplies have destroyed at least 60,000 tons of grain as global food security faces mounting threats. Russia's navies also carried out live-fire military exercises in the Black Sea days after Moscow withdrew from the Black Sea grain deal. And both Moscow and Kyiv said ships traveling to either Russian or Ukrainian ports through the waterway constitute potential military targets. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said today he'll be holding talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin, which could lead to restoring the grain deal. Meanwhile, Ukraine started using cluster bombs supplied by the United States on the battlefield. Over 100 countries have signed on to an international treaty banning their use due to the danger they pose to civilians, though it's not signed by Russia, Ukraine or the United States. In Nebraska, the teenager who used abortion pills to terminate her pregnancy was sentenced to 90 days in jail. Police charged 19-year-old Celeste Burgess and her mother, Jessica Burgess, who assisted her in getting the pills and disposing of the fetus, after Facebook handed over their private messages. Celeste was just 17 when her mother ordered the pills online. The events took place before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June 2022. At the time, abortion in Nebraska was banned after 20 weeks. Earlier this year, Governor Jim Pillen signed a 12-week ban into law. Meanwhile, a court in Austin heard testimony this week from women who are suing over Texas's abortion ban, which puts their lives in danger when they were unable to end their pregnancies, even when they were non-viable. In a dramatic moment, plaintiff Samantha Cassiano vomited on the stand as she recounted her traumatic experience. She was forced to carry out her pregnancy even after receiving a diagnosis of anencephaly, a severe congenital disorder that results in a baby being born without portions of its brain and skull. Another plaintiff, Elizabeth Weller, spoke at a news conference Wednesday. I was sent home to wait for my baby to die or for my infection to start showing physical symptoms, even though they were already there. But I wasn't sick enough to get the care that I needed. There is no statement of pro-life in this state when you send me home to wait for my baby to die inside of me and for me to wait for myself to get to a point where I have to gamble my uterus and gamble my life and gamble any future possibility of becoming pregnant. It's not pro-life. In a sense, it's almost pro-torture. 
The press conference was held by the Center for Repro Reproductive Rights, which brought the lawsuit on behalf of 13 patients and two doctors. In related news, new data shows Texas's abortion bans likely leading to a surge in infant mortality as women are forced to carry non-viable pregnancies to term. Infant deaths increased by over 11 percent last year over the previous year. Meanwhile, infant deaths with severe genetic and birth defects rose by over 21 percent after years of decline. Florida's Board of Education approved new standards for teaching black history after Governor Ron DeSantis and Florida Republicans passed new laws limiting what can be taught in classrooms as part of their anti-woke crusade. The standards include teaching children that, quote, slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit, unquote. It also instructs educators to teach about violence committed by black people. The Florida Education Association blasted the new standards, saying, quote, Governor DeSantis is pursuing a political agenda guaranteed to set good people against one another, and in the process, he's cheating our kids. They deserve the full truth of American history, the good and the bad, they said. Vice President Kamala Harris is traveling to Jacksonville today to speak out against Florida's attack on black history and education. In more news from Florida, rights groups are suing over SB 1718, a new law targeting immigrants, making it more difficult to work and get medical care, among other things. One in five Florida residents is an immigrant. In a statement, the ACLU of Florida said, quote, this legislation is not the solution to any problem. It's an attempt to scapegoat and terrorize vulnerable families and workers already burdened by the difficulty of the federal immigration process, they said. Meanwhile, the Florida Rights Restoration Committee is suing DeSantis, they say, for illegally intimidating people with felonies in order to prevent, prevent them from voting. The lawsuit accuses Florida of creating intentional obstacles to determine voting eligibility and creating an election police to go after people who may have cast ballots without knowing they were still not legally permitted to do so. Almost all those targeted by the police force were black and Democrats. In Georgia, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger announced another 191,000 people will be purged from Georgia election rolls, even though they're registered voters. The move targets voters who are deemed inactive because mailed election materials were not able to be delivered, and voters who may have not officially signaled an address change. Kendra Cotton, head of the New Georgia Project Action Fund, said, quote, Georgia is well known for its wide-ranging and creative attempts at voter suppression. Voting is a right. If someone chooses not to use it, that doesn't mean they lose it, they said. Meanwhile, in Alabama, lawmakers passed a new congressional map this week that still does not include a second-majority black district as ordered by the U.S. Supreme Court last month. In other news from Alabama, the state executed James Barber early this morning after the U.S. Supreme Court denied a request for a stay. It's the first execution by lethal injection in Alabama following a pause last year to review a series of botched executions. The group reprieve said, quote, there's no humane method of execution. Executions aren't working and it's torture, they said. A warning to our audience, the following story contains descriptions of sexual violence. In India, protesters have taken to the streets after a video went viral on social media showing dozens of men sexually assaulting two women in the northeastern state of Manipur. The incident took place in May, but the video surfaced just this week due to an Internet ban in the region. 
The main suspect was arrested Thursday, accused of dragging the two women, aged 21 and 42, onto the street and inciting a mob of over two dozen men to assault them, then parade them on the streets naked. At least one of them was raped by the mob. Manipur has recently seen soaring ethnic violence between the majority Métis group and the tribal Kuki minority. The two women assaulted in the video are Kuki. The families of the two survivors have denounced police misconduct, saying it took law enforcement months to address the case. In Ecuador, some 1,200 barrels of crude oil spilled into the Pacific Ocean Wednesday, contaminating over two miles of shoreline. Officials with Ecuador's national oil company, PetroEcuador, said a tank in a maritime terminal had surpassed its capacity, causing it to spill. The company was only able to contain about half the spilled crude, while the rest collected on the ocean front of the popular Las Palmas Beach. Cleanup efforts are underway as environmentalists warn of the effects the spill could have on local wildlife. Here in New York City, lawyers, plaintiffs and city officials held a news conference Thursday following the announcement the city will settle for $13 million with racial justice protesters who were brutalized by the New York police during the 2020 uprising that followed the murder of George Floyd. This is attorney Wiley Stecklow. Today's settlement is historic, and I'm very proud that it will bring some sense of justice to nearly 1,400 people who took to the streets and put their bodies in the line against police brutality. But as a New York City taxpayer, I am bothered. The payout is a red flag, but we still have NYPD executive officers like Chief of Patrol John Shell, Inspector Elias Nikas, leading unconstitutional protest policing in this city. Their example to the rest of the 35,000 members of service is that the Constitution does not apply simply when these high-ranking members of the service say so. The Senate Judiciary Committee advanced legislation to mandate the Supreme Court adopt a code of ethics and stricter financial disclosure rules. The move comes following explosive revelations around several justices, most notably Clarence Thomas, who was lavish for decades with luxury travel and gifts by GOP megadonor Harlan Crow. No Republicans voted for the measure, though they did attempt to add amendments to make it easier for judges to carry weapons and to ban reporters from publishing draft opinions without court approval. The Amendments were defeated. And in labor news, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, has averted a strike that would have shut down Broadway after reaching a tentative deal to improve working conditions for some 1,500 stagehands, hair and makeup artists, and wardrobe personnel. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we speak to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Maria Hossa on a new investigation into the sexual abuse of women detained by ICE. And then we speak to Isabel Allende about her new novel. Stay with us. Está clavada tan profundo que 
quiero hacerla salir cantando mi dolor buscando una respuesta no hay explicación Julieta Venegas, here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A warning to our viewers and listeners. The story contains descriptions of sexual abuse. We begin today's show with a disturbing new investigation into how immigration officials have failed to properly address complaints of sexual abuse from people held in detention centers. The damning new report by Maria Hinojosa and Ziba Warsi, two immigrant women and journalists, examines how women in immigration and customs enforcement or ICE jails have been sexually abused, often in a medical setting, when they're at their most vulnerable. The report's out today from Futuro Investigates, the investigative unit of the Pulitzer Prize-winning news organization Futuro Media and Latino USA. It comes more than a decade after Mariana Hosa's report for PBS Frontline about sexual abuse in ICE jails. But allegations of abuse have continued. Maria will join us in a minute. But first, this clip from the report. When she and Zeba speak with a Venezuelan migrant who is using the pseudonym Viviana for safety, describing her first meeting with a male nurse employed at ICE's Stewart Detention Center in Georgia. During her first weeks detained at Stewart, Viviana had a urinary tract infection. She was prescribed medication that gave her a severe allergic reaction. Your face is swollen, your lips are swollen, you were unable to breathe, and you were feeling incredibly scared. She tells us that in that moment of total vulnerability, that's when she met this male nurse a short, white man with a beard. And we should warn you, the following descriptions of her visits are explicit. They are hard to listen to, but we also believe that they're necessary to understand what Viviana and other women go through. So he's using a stethoscope to put it on your lower body. So I'm just to describe what you're showing me is that he takes the stethoscope and he basically puts it right where a woman's ovary might be. Y me decía, abre la boca. Yo abro la boca más, me decía, ay, se reía, ajá, ajá, y reía. Viviana told us that while examining her with the stethoscope, the nurse asked her to open her mouth and then to open it wider he then stepped away and typed a question into Google Translate, and this made her feel even more uncomfortable. So, at this point, he writes a note to you that asks you if you have a boyfriend. Te pregunta si tienes un novio. Sí. had also reported they were abused by the same male nurse at Stewart. Let's go to another clip from the new investigation. So, once women started to arrive at Stewart, this nurse started seeing female patients, and Viviana said he started abusing them. This nurse and his abuse, you believe, was not a secret to anybody who had spent any time inside Stewart whether they were his colleagues or people who were detained. Tú sientes que todo el mundo sabía de este enfermero. Claro. After that second incident with the nurse, Viviana returned to her cell 
and broke down in tears. She told other detainees what happened to her. Yo llego hasta a la celda y lo empiezo a hablar. So you feel like you were one of the people who helped the other women start naming what was happening. Y ahí empieza una de Nicaragua, una del de Salvador, y me dicen, me pasó lo mismo. Women from different countries told her that they suffered similar abuses from the same male nurse. We've reviewed documents that show that at least five women came forward and complained against the male nurse. One of them was also another young woman from Venezuela. An excerpt from the new investigation called Immensely Invisible, which found the pattern of sexual abuse complaints and ICE detention goes beyond the Stewart jail in Georgia. Women were only brought to Stewart in 2020 after ICE had to shut down the Irwin County Detention Center, also in Georgia, when a whistleblower nurse there exposed forced hysterectomies and other invasive gynecological procedures by Dr. Mahendra Amin, who was contracted by LaSalle Corrections, which runs Irwin for ICE. In 2020, 20, Democracy Now! spoke to a survivor of gynecological abuse while detained at Irwin. Jeremy Floriana Navarro described how she was scheduled for an unwanted hysterectomy while held at Irwin between 2019 and September 2020. Until she was deported to Mexico, she believed in retaliation for speaking up about the abuse. Again, a warning to our audience. Her account is extremely disturbing. And... From day one that I met Dr. Min, he said, okay, you need surgery. He did a ultrasound, vaginal ultrasound with the, with the wand. And I didn't even know he was going to do that. To be honest with you, I didn't know that I was going to have to take my pants off or lay on that bed and let him look at me. I didn't, I didn't know that. Nobody ever told me that I was going to have a vaginal ultrasound. They took me back to see Dr. Amin from March to July at least 25 times. They would take me out constantly to go see him. He would, he would always check me. If it wasn't with his fingers, then it would be with the wand. And to be honest with you, it was uncomfortable each and every time. I didn't like anything he ever did. I didn't like his posture. I didn't like the way he stood in front of me or rested his hand on my knee as he did the vaginal, the vaginal search or whatever he was doing. And it was uncomfortable, to be honest with you. He kept telling me every single time I would see him that I was going to have a surgery. But for some reason, I never knew when the surgery was going to be. For more, we're joined by Maria Najosa, the Pulitzer Prize-winning founder of Futuro Media, host of Latino USA, which collaborated on this new investigation called Immensely Invisible about the ongoing pattern of sexual abuse and ICE detention. Maria, welcome back to Democracy Now! This is such a harrowing investigation. Talk about all that you have learned. This is over a decade after you did this big PBS investigation. Amy, you know, we're journalists. The work that we do is actually to serve. And we believe in our work that when we put sunlight, when we put sun, sun, right, when we uncover something, that because we believe we live in such an advanced democratic country, that we believe things are going to get better. And they don't. In this particular case, on the question of people 
men, women, children, in this case we're reporting about women, being sexually abused continuously at government-run immigrant detention centers consistently gets worse, actually. It doesn't get better. One of the things that we uncovered with this piece with Zeba Warsi from the PBS NewsHour um, is that one of the things that the that ICE is trying to do is to use transfers. This is a term that now you're going to begin to hear more about, those of you who care about this kind of reporting. Transfers as a way to deal with immigrants and refugees who are making complaints. Or transfers in order to deal with one immigrant detention center that is shut down because of abuse. And then people are transferred to another detention facility where they are said, now you're going to be safe. Now you're going to be safer. You're going to be transferred from one to another, and now things are going to get better. In fact, we have seen that it's a form of punishment. It's a way of shuffling off the problem, not dealing with the problem. Amy, as you know, we have been friends and colleagues for decades now. And when I uncovered the abuse in the front line in 2011, it was it was horrific. Uh, Senator Dick Durbin goes on the Senate floor and says, because of the front line, that is why PREA, Prison Rape Elimination Act, must be offered in immigrant detention facilities. And here we are, uncovering yet again that ICE investigates itself. What is that? They're investigating themselves. And finally, we have a very specific case of women coming forward, taking agency, which is part of our, our investigation, right, is that they're not, they're not just victims, but they are also taking agency, speaking up, complaining about one male nurse who, as far as we know, has not lost his license and who sexually abused them continuously when they were seen the nurse, when you're in a vulnerable, just like the, the, the cut that we just heard, which is horrific. Um, when women, refugees and immigrants are at their most vulnerable, this is when they are being exposed to being abused by medical personnel. It is horrific, Amy. I had to go into a whole other series of, of therapy because of this exposure yet again. So the Southern Poverty Law Center, Maria, reviewed medical records. They showed the male nurse who had been working at Stewart Detention Facility, the jail in Georgia, since at least 2018. What's known about his employment now? Uh, we know that he has not lost his license. Uh, we know who he is. We tried to communicate. Zeba called him. He hung up. Uh, we do not know... We, we don't we know that there is no kind of official complaint against him, uh, nothing that has been legally brought on by ICE or any of the uh, core civic run detention facilities where he may have worked. So he is a predator and he remains out there. And by the way, Amy, if if you have a criminal mind, and there's a TV show, right? Criminal Minds. If you have a criminal mind, you know exactly where to go to find a job. You go to ICE because you know now that because there is, um, they need to fill positions, there aren't even background checks. And you have access to men, to women, and to children in trauma. And you know that they will more than likely not complain because as we talk about in this piece, if you Complain, you are going to be threatened. Like our, like the women who we spoke to, they were told that they were going to be sent to prison, that they were going to be deported immediately. Constant coercion and threats. So this is horrific. This, Amy, we know 
sadly, you and I will be gone, and they'll make Hollywood movies, we hope, about how this was happening in the United States and how everybody was just like, how is this happening? It's happening today. Women who are abused in detention are supposed to be protected by the Prison Rape Elimination Act, or PREA. Can you talk about the legislation and the protections ICE and private prison corporations like Core Civic have mm-hmm. repeatedly ignored? So the Prison Rape Elimination Act was created for prisons, right? It is a, a way in which to protect people behind bars when they are being sexually assaulted. It is a way in which they can have kind of an independent way to complain. Um, but this, as we know, because immigrants in detention, we do not have the same legal rights. We have no legal rights. Zero due process. Uh, Senator Dick Durbin was so moved by what we uncovered in 2011 in the front line, which you can watch on, on Frontline on YouTube, um, <clears throat> that those protections, which is that uh, somebody who's held can make an independent complaint, has access to a way to make this complaint, to follow up on the complaint, uh, that there, in the case of ICE, what, what Zeba was able to uh, see has changed, right, is that now you have the protocol of having signed all over, which is really dystopian because the abuse continues to happen. But now you have signs everywhere that say, by the way, if you're being abused, you should not be being abused and you can call this number for help. And what we uncovered is, as you heard Viviana and Mari saying, those signs mean nothing for the people who are being held. Absolutely nothing. And that's what's changed, that now there's a sign up. But it doesn't mean that there's a a legal protection for women in this case, being uh, who are complaining against sexual abuse. By the way, Amy, for the immigrants who are held in detention, the legal path for them is incredibly complicated because, again, they have no due process because, like me, they were not born in this country. And as a result, you have no due process when you're in immigrant proceedings. Well, Maria Hinojosa, we're going to link to this incredible investigation you've done. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, founder of Futuro Media, host of Latino USA, the investigation into sexual assault of migrants held at ICE detention jails. Coming up, the acclaimed author Isabel Allende, back in 30 seconds. Pongo en tus manos abiertas mi guitarra de cantor. Victor Hara here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We spend the rest of the hour with Isabel Allende, one of the world's most celebrated novelists, the author of 26 books that have sold more than 77 million copies and been translated into more than 40 languages. Isabel Allende was born in Peru in 1942. She traveled the world as the daughter of a Chilean diplomat. Her father's first cousin was former Chilean president Salvador Allende. This September marks 50 years since Augusto Pinochet seized power from Allende in a CIA-backed military coup. The date, September 11th, 1973, Salvador Allende died in the palace that day. Isabel Allende would later flee from her native Chile to Venezuela. Her books include The House of the Spirits, Paula, and Daughter of Fortune. Her latest novel, The Wind Knows My Name, 
looks at the trauma of child family separation from the Nazi Holocaust to the U.S.-Mexican border and those on the front lines helping migrant children. On Thursday, I interviewed Isabel from her home in California. I asked her to start by telling us the story of her new novel, The Wind Knows My Name, beginning in 1938. In 1938, in November, um, it was the Kristallnacht in uh, German and Austria. And it was a night in which uh, the Nazi mobs attacked the Jewish houses and establishments, commercial establishments, and they broke the windows and beat up, beat up people. And it was just a very scary and terrible uh, preamble to what was going to happen very soon after. And at that point, the Jewish community realized that they had to get out. And so many people started looking for visas and places to go. The England offered 10,000 temporary visas for children to get the children out. And so many families had the terrible choice of sending their children away to save them from a potential danger that was there in, in the air. And they knew it was coming, but they couldn't be very sure. And still, they, they had to make that choice. So uh, these kids, uh, ages I don't know, one year old up to 15, uh, went uh, in convoys, in trains to the Netherlands and other places where they would be sent to England. They were received by people who uh, were offered their homes, also by orphanages and other establishments. But really, the parents never, never knew who was going to receive the kids or what was going to happen to them. Most of them, more than 90% of them, never saw their families again. That separation that was supposed to be temporary became permanent. And those children who lost everything uh, were raised in other places. They had a life in England or in Europe, or they came to the United States. Many of them became very successful. But I heard on the on television some interviews to very old people who were part of the kinder transport, and they had a hole in the heart. They never forgot the trauma. They lived with that all their lives. So when the separation of families at the border here happened in 2017 and 18, I remember the kinder transport and other instances in which the children have been taken away from the parents. For example, during slavery, children were sold out, taken from their mother's arms. Uh, In many indigenous tribes, not only in the United States, but in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, in many places, the children were taken away to put them in some Christian orphanages, horrible places where many of them died of abuse and starvation. Uh, So so that idea of separating the kids is extremely cruel, but it keeps happening. And that prompted me to write the book. I I was already thinking about it when I had, I saw a case through my foundation that, that really triggered the writing. 
And that was the case of a little girl with her brother. She was seven and the brother, she was almost seven and the brother was four. And they came with their mother to to the United States illegally. They were separated at the border. The mother was detained, arrested and sent away. And the children were in detention centers and then in, in foster homes and whatever. The problem is the girl was blind. And can you imagine a little blind girl who is in charge of a brother and who doesn't know where she is, doesn't speak the language, can't see, can't even recognize people or or places. So the, the terror of that girl was what triggered the book. But then I realized that, like in most of my books, I don't focus on the victims as much as on the people who are trying to help, because it is through them, through their actions and through their eyes, that I can tell the story without plunging into the depth of hell. I wanted to go back for a moment to the kinder transport that you talk about. We dug up a documentary called Kinder Transport, directed by Fran Robertson and Kevin McDonald. In this clip, we hear Leo Metstein and Edith Forrester. In the evening, my mother took me to the railway station. And then I really felt for the first time that there was going to be something terrible happen. And I I remember saying to my mother, you're coming too. And she said, well, no, not just now. I hope to come later. The station was a horrific experience. I mean, you can just imagine there were thousands of people there and they were letting their children go. And it was just horrible to see. I just look back and just see my mother and sister standing there. That's the worst memory I've got. And I'm just crying all the time, just cry, cry, cry. That's all I could do. And then as the train just lurched a little, I screamed. I can hear my voice yet shouting, Muti, Muti, Mummy, Mummy. And somebody lifted me up and I was able to see over somebody's head my mother's face, her eyes frantically looking for me. And that was my last sight of my mother. Those voices from the documentary Kinder Transport. And that's the story you tell of a young Samuel who, too, would never see his parents again, Isabel. Yeah. Yeah. It was very very easy for me to to put myself in the place of Samuel. Uh, I really felt his pain uh, and... and uh, and, and Samuel, for me, is a very interesting character because this is a man who, because of the trauma of his childhood, he was a, really a musical prodigy, but that was lost in the shuffle and the, and the war and everything else. Uh, he, he tries to have a very safe life. So he, he becomes a, a musician in the symphony. He, ha- he ha- has a sheltered life, a protected life, in which he doesn't want to get involved in anything that will upset him. He's married to a wonderful, extravagant woman, and he doesn't know about her infidelities or about the, her secret um, activities or who she's, what she's doing and with whom, because that would upset him. He just wants everything uh, as, as nice as possible. And then 
the pandemic hits when he's 86 and he finds himself uh, at home, sheltering at home, the terror of being alone, he asks his housekeeper, Leticia, to please stay with him, thinking it would be just for a week or two. And so they start living together. And then at 86, he can reflect about his life. And there's a point when he says, I wasted my life. I let life pass by and I didn't participate in anything. I am guilty of the sin of indifference. And and sooner or later in life, you pay for that. (laughs) And then life gives him the opportunity to atone for that sin of indifference when he opens his heart and his house and his life to the little girl that knocks at his door, this little blind girl. You know, as I was reading about Anita, the little girl, I couldn't help but think back to 2018, inside that U.S. Customs and Border Protection facility, in which children are heard crying, Mama and Poppy, after being separated from their parents. The kids believed to have been between the ages of four and ten years old. I want to play that clip for a moment. That audio shock the world was later played by reporters at a White House press briefing, also blasted from speakers to donors as they arrived at a Republican fundraiser at Trump's hotel in Washington, D.C. These children separated under Trump's child separation policy. Uh, What still hundreds, if not a thousand or more, still never reconnected with their families, with their parents. Talk more about Anita and her journey. Well, in the case of the real Anita, uh, the the girl who inspired the the book, um, she she couldn't hear where her mother was or reunite with her mother. But there were lawyers and and social workers trying to put the family together again. Eventually, after eight months, they were reunited. And they went in in front of a judge who deported them all. And they were deported to Mexico, where we never heard from them again. So um, very tragic story, one of the many tragic stories. But there are still, as you said, uh, a thousand kids at least that have not been reunited because no one thought about it. They thought about the separation, not the unification, the reunification. So um, there are many, many aspects of this that are terrible. For example, the the name of the the book, The Wind Knows My Name. The idea is that, that in order to keep track of the kids, they give them a number. Sometimes the kids are so little, they are... Babies, they don't even speak English. They don't know, they don't speak anything. Or they are so traumatized that they won't speak. So even their names are lost and they become numbers. So when we think of, of refugees, and there are 170 million refugees in the world, 
we we think of numbers. That doesn't mean anything. We need to see the face, hear the story, know the name, so that it makes sense. We could be that person. That could be our child. And and that is the I think the the miracle of literature that it brings people close by telling the story of one child you can somehow uh, connect with the reader and create that that um, sense of empathy that is so often lacking and isabel so often the the power of your books it's the stories of real people, but also the way you expand and bend and wind them through your imagination. Um, you tell us the story of, of Anita and also Leticia. And if you could tell us her story and talk about what happened in El Salvador in 1981. Well, the, the, the thing is that when we think of migrants and refugees, why are they coming? There's a moment in the book when the when someone when the lawyer Frank says, "Well, if they know that they're going to take the children away, why are they coming? Well, they come because they are desperate. They're running away from extreme violence in their countries or extreme poverty, um, and so t- taking the chance of 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 crossing the border is preferable than staying." Um, in in the case of Leticia, Leticia the housekeeper. She has lived in the in the United States for many many years. This is also based on a, on a case on, on a very good friend of mine who is from El Salvador, and I see her almost every day because we walk the dogs together. So she helped me a lot with the research for that part of the book. And in El Salvador, uh, there was ho- horrific um, military repression for in the eighties, especially. And one known massacre was the massacre of El Mosote. And this was the military uh, entered the zone called El Mosote, which is just farmers, just people who lived off the, of the land. And there were little small villages scattered here and there. And um, Leticia was one of the children in El Mosote. And her, she had a stomach problem and she was taken by the father to a hospital in the city. And so she was not there when the massacre happened. So the military came in trucks and helicopters and they took over the, 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 the village, not only that village, several, and they separated the men from the women. They tortured everybody, including the children. They killed Everybody, including the pets, the children were in, in inside what they what was supposed to be a little chapel or something, and they burned the whole thing to ashes. And then three days later, after this orgy of blood and cruelty and 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 death, they left the place, and the government covered the whole thing up for years and years. Some people who presented this horror story because these military were trained by the CIA in Washington. And it was also covered by the press there and by the the government. So for more than 10 years, the whole story was kept silent. And, and, And 
there there's a thousand people dead there so and this is in a very small country so i needed to to talk about el mosote to explain why people get out why people have to escape what do you do if you have to confront the maras the, the, the gangs the narcos and the military so it's it it was necessary for me to tell the story of Leticia as well to understand why people emigrate. The story of El Mazote is so horrifying, and you depict it so unforgettably uh, in The Wind Knows My Name. Uh, in El Mazote, the Atlacatl Brigade that was trained, as you said, by the United States. Tell us more about The Wind Knows My Name, that title. Um, and how you continue at the age of 80, you cannot be without a pen, or maybe it's a computer. Um, are you using a pen for the first draft or a computer these days? No, I don't have a draft. I, uh, I start all my books on January 8th out of discipline and superstition, probably too. And, um, and then I sit in front of the empty blank screen. And I'm, often I don't even know what I'm going to write about. I have a vague idea. If it's a historical novel, I might have researched the, the place and the time. But, but I, I confront the, the screen at the beginning with an open mind. I don't know what's going to happen really. And I don't have a draft. I don't have a script. Things happen. And somehow, it seems this is a cliche, of course, that the universe conspires to help because as I write, it seems that all my antenna are uh, directed out there to, to, to pick up the, the collective unconscious, the collective fears and dreams and, and the past and memory and all that I can do because my work is very silent and very, and it's always I, I'm always alone. You know, we live in the noise. So nothing happens in the noise, Amy. When when you are in, in silence in, in a room with your characters and with your story, things happen. Miracles happen. Ghosts appear. Everything. What is the ceremony you perform before you put that, um, before you start writing on January 8th? Well, the day before, I clean up. And by cleaning up, I mean I take out everything that had to do with the previous book, all the research, the books, the notes, everything. I burn sage. I, um, I have my candle, always a new candle. I have my cup of Marco Polo tea ready. And, uh, and then I do a little meditation to, uh, to sort of call in what other people would call inspiration and i call my spirits the spirit the the memory of my mother and my and my grandparents and my daughter and even the pets that 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 have gone to the other world i call them in and i say come on you have to help me in this process and then i feel accompanied and strong so you have your mother and then you have your memory of paula 
your daughter, your oldest child yeah. who died, who you wrote a book about, and we've talked about that book in the past, but your daughter, also the inspiration for your foundation that works along the border. Um, talk about Paula and how she influences what you do. Paula, um, I think that every parent thinks that their children are special, are different, are extraordinary. Uh, and that's how I remember my, my daughter. She was, um, she was a psychologist and a teacher, and she worked always as a volunteer among the poorest of the poor. She never earned any money. So I supported her with the idea that she would do the good work and I would go to heaven. So we had this, this deal. Um, when she died, I, I mean, she, her premature death really broke my heart. And when, when I wrote the book, Paula, I didn't want to touch any of the income that would come from that book. Of course, it belonged to her, but I didn't know what to do with it. And eventually I came up with the idea of creating a foundation to prolong the work that she had been doing. And so she always worked with women and children because what she told me very early on, even before this was common knowledge, was that if you change a woman's life, you change the family. And if you change and improve the conditions of a family or many families, then the community emerges and eventually a country. And the, the, the places that are most backward and poorest in the world are where women are put down the most. So the, that idea uh, that Paula had very young, she had already come up with that. I decided that that was going to be the mantra of my foundation. So we work. Well, I didn't know what, how to do it. Just sending checks here and there didn't, didn't do any, any good, I think. But then my my uh, daughter-in-law walked into our lives, Lori Barra, and she took over, and she transformed the foundation. Right now, she's in Africa in visiting two of our projects over there. Uh, she's all the time traveling, all the time in touch with our grantees, and she has done a fantastic, fantastic job. You know, Amy. Sometimes I say to to Lori, Lori, what's the point? This is a drop of water in a, an ocean, a desert of need. What, what are we, what does it mean? And she says, don't, don't think in numbers, think in lives. If you can improve someone's life, you've done enough. So let's think about that lives. And, and I understand that because I think in stories and stories are always about people, one person at a time. So that's what I try to do in my writing. And that's what Lori does in the foundation. You dedicate the book to Lori. And for people who don't know, Paula, your daughter, died of porphyria, a rare disease, genetic disease. Yeah, it's a, it's a genetic condition more that, that runs in the family, my former husband's, I mean, Paula's father's family. And two of my granddaughters also have it. And my son. But it doesn't manifest in, in, in males only or mostly in females, in women. So, um, Paula had an attack and it shouldn't be fatal if it's treated properly and in time. But she was in Madrid 
she, there was serious neglect, I mean criminal neglect in the hospital, and Paula ended up with severe brain damage. They tried to hide it, and for five months they told me that she was going to recover, um, which of course she couldn't. And eventually I brought her in a coma all the way from Madrid to California in a commercial United flight. How did I do that? I have no idea. I I don't know. Um, it, it was, of course, before 9-11, so that, that was maybe possible. Today it would be impossible. And I took care of her at home until she died. She was 29 when she died. Now both my granddaughters are older than she was when she died. It's interesting mm. how life goes by. And they both have it, but it is not a fatal condition. No. Uh, one of my granddaughters has, ha- has had six attacks, serious attacks, and she has survived and she's doing well. And now, finally, recently, there is a preventive drug that that she is using. Once a month, she gets a shot. And that prevents the attack, or at least it makes it much milder. Can you talk to women writers, women who are taking care of so many, uh, being able to isolate, as you do, to be able to write, to be able to find that silence? What do you recommend, Isabel? Well, it's so hard. Virginia Woolf already said you need a room of your room of your own. And that room doesn't have to be a physical room. It has to be a room inside you where you re- retreat to be alone with yourself and your writing. But that is almost impossible if you have small children. I, I could not write until my children were teenagers. I mean, older teenagers. So that I could, they were, they already had their lives. Paula was driving. It, it was a, a completely different life. I, I worked at the time in administering a school 12 hours a day because I had two shifts, but I could come home and I didn't have to take care of the kids. And I knew while I was working that the kids were doing fine. And, and I, I also had help at home. I didn't have to clean up. And uh, and so I could I could write at night, at the beginning in the kitchen on the kitchen counter, alone at night and uh, during the weekends or I I could find little moments to write. Then I emptied a closet and I put a board across the closet with a light bulb on top and my typewriter there, and then I could close the doors of the closet and my writing was there intact, waiting for me for the next day or another moment to go back to it. But before, when I was writing in the kitchen, that was not possible. I had a canvas bag where I would put everything and carry it around with me like a newborn baby. I would never part from that canvas bag until the manuscript was finished. Uh, so there's always ways that one can find of um, for oneself, but it depends very much on your domestic situation. In fact, you wrote your first book, House of the Spirits, at what, at the age of 40? Yeah, I couldn't do it before. And can you remind us um, 
how you wrote this book. It's not as if you had an agent. It's not as if you were had a community of writers, as you're describing. Talk about what you in what inspired you. You were in, you were in not in Chile at the time, remembering no, no, your no, grandfather's house. I was living house. in exile in Venezuela. We still had the military coup in Chile, the dictatorship, because this was in 1981. It was actually one of the worst times of the of the dictatorship. Uh, so I was living in Venezuela with my kids and my my husband, but my husband wasn't living with us. He was working in another province in Venezuela. And uh, um, I heard that my grandfather was dying in Chile, and I started a letter for him. Somehow I, I sort of knew that he would not be able to read the letter because it was his last days, and the mail was would take maybe a couple of weeks, a week at least. So I started a letter and I, I wanted somehow to tell him or tell myself that I remembered everything that he had ever told me. All the anecdotes of the family, my ancestors, my crazy family. Uh, I, I remembered everything he had told me. And so I started telling about my great aunt Rosa, who was my grandfather's first fiancé, and she died mysteriously before they could get married. Many years later, my grandfather married the youngest daughter in the same family, my grandmother, who was clairvoyant and, and crazy also, wonderful, a lunatic. And, um, and so I, I started telling about Rosa, and then something happened. It was like, like everything I had inside just was poured out in those pages. I had a little typewriter. And then at the time, there was, of course, no computers. You, In order to have a copy of something, you would have a carbon paper behind. But I didn't have even the carbon paper. It was just one only page with a story. Cut and paste, you would cut with scissors. Paste with scotch tape. So that was how you corrected things. You had to think very carefully every sentence because erasing it, it was almost impossible. You had to start the page again. So uh, it was a wonderful process of, with such innocence, not knowing anything about the, the book industry. I had never read a book review in my life. I was a good reader. I had never taken a course about writing or or. Or, or being in a workshop, I didn't know any other writers. And of course, it was the time of the boom of Latin American literature, and they were all male. They were all men. They were, and it was happening in the periphery of my life. I was reading their work, but I could never even dream of getting in touch with any of them. The world-renowned writer Isabel Allende her latest novel, The Wind Knows My Name. She's the author of 26 books that have sold more than 77 million copies and translated into more than 40 languages. She just recently turned 80 years old. To see all our interviews with Isabel Allende, visit democracynow.org. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.